Why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world inside? One, two, three, four. This is the Prying Priest Podcast, and I'm Father Yuri Hladio. You're listening to the first half of an unedited interview about the personal stories of amazing people and why they have come to believe what they do. For the second half of these interviews, you can become a patron of the show at patreon.com slash pryingpriest. But for now, enjoy the show. Seemed good on my end. I don't know if it was <laughs> off on yours. That'll that'll work just fine. We'll be super synchronized, not only in conversation but temporally as well. Okay, great. Well, that's well, what you wel- have with two drummers. Exactly. Welcome, Max. Thank to you the Yuri. Pri- to the Prying Priest podcast, where I hope to pry into a bit of your life today. I'm welcome to prying. <laughs> um, yeah, we know each other because you came to the University of Toronto at Trinity College, the Orthodox program there while I was there. And we spent a year together studying and we went to a monastery together and we hung out and we got to know each other and then you moved back to BC. So could you give a bit of a, a rundown as to what brought you to Toronto to the Orthodox School of Theology and then maybe what took you away as well? Oh, sure. Um, well, I was originally earning my master's degree at Ambrose Seminary. I had studied previously at Columbia Bible College and got an undergrad in biblical studies, but I was thinking about becoming a pastor in the evangelical church, and so I wanted more schooling before that because I felt more schooling would be helpful, and was at Ambrose for two years, and in that time joined the Orthodox Church and felt like it'd be better to finish my master's at an Orthodox school. So that's Mm -hmm. why we moved out to Toronto originally. And then while we were in Toronto, Michaela got pregnant. So all of our families back in BC and we decided to move back to BC for the birth, uh, which on the whole was a good decision, but it had its difficulties too, because we actually fell in the gap for, for coverage for the no, this is totally aside, but uh, if anyone's getting <laughs> pregnant out there and they want to move provinces, just make sure you're covered by the government. <laughs> it was also sad because, you know, I didn't get to hang out with you as often anymore. Yeah, well, and especially that. Um, what, were, were you always in a Christian home growing up and everything like that? Is that what led to you wanting to become a pastor? Yeah, I mean, sort of. Like, my mom thought I would be a good pastor, and I thought that was a dumb idea. And then <laughs> it just seemed like a really uncool job. And then I came across this teaching that what God wants for you is perhaps what's best for you, so why not try it out? And I thought, well, that seems logical, so I'll give it a shot. But I didn't um, always live in a Christian home because my mom and stepdad were involved in the new age movement and Mm. you know to various degrees my mom even like read tarot cards at one point in the past before i was around Mm -hmm. but then she had some colleagues at the police station where she worked that invited her and me to like this youth group thing and I started going and enjoyed it. And then my parents started going. And so we all converted when 
maybe I was around like six or seven. Oh, okay. Like a real youth group, like a youth youth group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was imagining like 13 year old Max. No, no, no. So yeah, like a, a kid's group. And since then I was raised in a Christian home and I can't really remember much before that. Um, but technically there was a period where no one was Christian. Yeah. And what was that like growing up in a Christian home? So your, your mother obviously thought you'd make a good pastor. Why did she think you'd make a good pastor? I don't know. We should phone her in and see what yeah. she says. <laughs> She'll be ne next week on the Prying Priest podcast. <laughs> yeah. I call the mothers of all my guests. Yeah. <laughs> That's only for the uh, Patreon supporters. Yeah, Patreon only episodes. But I think while we enjoyed talking about God and would have those sorts of conversations mm -hmm. growing up, so I suppose... That would be one reason. Um, people have told me that I'm reasonably patient, and I suppose that's helpful in ministry because you're working with people, which can be frustrating. And I'm not sure what else. Yeah, so you mentioned that you came across this teaching that if, if God has chosen something for you, it's worth trying out that you had come across that kind of thinking. So if God kind of wants you to be a pastor, whether or not you want to be a pastor, it almost, you know, you have to give it a try. How did you know that God wanted you to be a pastor? Oh, well, I suppose at Columbia Bible College, like I really enjoyed talking about God and studying theology. And then with the program I was in, there was an internship that was required. Um, but actually, even before that, I did an internship at a church and really enjoyed it. I felt like um, I was using 100% of myself. Like, it required um, a lot of me, but it was very fulfilling. And that call was also um, sort of ratified or supported by the community. So it wasn't just that I enjoyed it, but it was also at so I did two internships in my undergrad and at both of them, the church that is like the leadership said, Hey, we think you did a good job and you should keep going. Yeah. So there was a, some community support. It wasn't just you going out on a limb. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think I was totally crazy, but actually people sort of pointed me even more so uh, towards teaching um, rather than pastoral ministry specifically. Yeah, you you are a very intelligent person. You, you taught me a lot while you were here, and uh, you put me to shame a bit with how well you would write. And uh, you would uh, we had an online course together, and you were one of the first people to post. And you posted this long, succinct essay, and I, and I was suddenly intimidated and afraid of having to answer online. Well, and I'll send you your check later for saying that. Perfect. Perfect. Um. Yeah, so I'm wondering, you obviously went to the youth group when you were like six, seven years old. Your family sort of started going to church again there. Do you remember in that moment having any kind of conversion experience? Like you described it as a conversion for your family, but did you kind of personally have that kind of conversion experience in that moment? Yeah, when we first started going to that church, I was into Christian and it's not like I was against it or anything, but I do remember 
at a certain point waiting in the back seat of the car like someone was doing something in the foyer at the church we were leaving it was like after sunday and it was on a sunday after the service and i remember hearing about asking jesus into your heart this was like a evangelical church it was a mennonite brethren church in Kelowna called um, willow park and i prayed the kind of standard prayer as best i understood it at that age and sort of accepted Christ. Uh, and then there were other points like later on, um, but that was the initial conversion experience for me. When you look back on your life, how important do you see your conversion experience? I don't know if you've had more conversion experiences, but I know you've become Orthodox at some point in your life. So mm -hmm. um, when you look, so when you look back on your life, how important do you think conversion experiences were for you? Like those moments? Um, mm. Yeah, that's my first question. I have a second part to that. Yeah, I suppose they're... Like, I, I don't make... How would I say? It's not the end-all and the be-all. It's not like I automatically want to share my conversion story because I feel like following Christ is a constant choice and it's always about cooperating with Him each day and... In that regard, it's similar to marriage because you may have, well, everyone who's married obviously has a wedding, but it's then a constant choice to be married. So that said, those initial stepping outs or movements towards Christ um, or you know, particularly strong movements towards Christ are very significant and important in one's journey and i think that they um encourage one uh so yeah they're important but i don't like think of them every day or anything so now uh, what about conversions for other people so if someone comes to you and says max like you know i feel called to join such and such a church and I, and I did it and I want to tell you my story and or like people come and they say i've had this conversion experience what is your sort of gut reaction to to stories like that? I guess it depends on the kind of religious group they're joining because there are healthier and less healthy religious groups out there. And especially in Christianity, like if someone was joining basically like a charismatic fundamentalist group and they were really really excited about it i'd be sort of cautious um and i don't think that i'd come out and say well you definitely shouldn't do this but it would be kind of worrying to me just because i've been involved in some of those sorts of groups from time to time and everything that self-describes as christian isn't necessarily so so it would depend on the person i think and depend on the kind of group they're joining well, sounds like you'll make a good pastor, I think. Yeah, how's that for a <laughs> diplomatic answer? <laughs> um, okay, so you obviously, when you were six or seven, you had that sort of asking Jesus into your heart moment, and that uh, when you started growing up past that, what were some things or some events or some people that you met that sort of challenged some of your preconceived notions or 
um, really made you view the world in a different way or challenged you to view the world in a different way. Um, maybe one ex one example, just to prime the pump a little bit, was I was an Orthodox kid, but I went to a Catholic elementary school, and then I went to a Dutch Reformed high school, right? So I was I was thrown into a community in which everyone else did not share the same tradition that I came from. So I I just had to learn how to talk about my own faith. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of to prime the pump a little example. Is there anything like that for you? Yeah, there was a guy in high school who, um, it, it's kind of funny how this conversation evolved between uh, me and him because we weren't really friends in high school. I knew of him, but then after I graduated, we started emailing back and forth and I don't know the reason why, but he was a pretty, and I think still is a uh, devout atheist and would challenge my belief in God. And so I had to really think through why I believed certain things and try to defend them rationally to this guy. And often we didn't see eye to eye and I certainly didn't sway him and he didn't really sway me, but it was a productive conversation because if nothing else, I had to think through why I believed what I believed, at least to a certain extent. And also um, going to Columbia Bible College was helpful because they opened my eyes to different ways to read scripture and showed me that you can have a critical eye for religion and Christianity and that doesn't mean you're impious because I think there is a tendency to feel like if something's holy and sacred you're not supposed to question it and if you do then you are somehow threatening it or at least when I would be questioned by this friend in high school I would feel kind of threatened or like that my faith was jeopardized and that experience was beneficial because I think now I'm less that way and more able to have a reasonable conversation about faith. Yeah. Would you say that there are certain kind of arguments or certain discussions that still make you feel that your faith is threatened or like, would you characterize it that way today? Um, I don't know if I would describe it as like, threatened because I do believe that all truth is God's truth. And so, and that's like a metaphysical statement. It's like God is truth itself. And so whenever we encounter truth, it actually belongs to God. And that's not my thought. That's like all the patristics who talk about that, like St. Augustine or St. Basil the Great or others. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there are things that I wonder about, concerning my faith and it's not like I always feel rock solid in it. Um, that's something, uh, especially recently, not because of any certain event that I can think of, but when I was, I'm still a young man, like I'm 28, but previously in life, I just took it for granted that God existed and I would wake up and it was just, you know, 
the sky is blue and God exists. And as I've grown up a little bit, it's not as like self-evident and I do have doubts that I have to work through. Um, but I was talking to my friend about this and it was a good conversation and we came to one conclusion uh, and that was doubt is actually kind of a good thing in that it humbles us because if you just have like extreme super faith all the time, it can be easy to become kind of arrogant in that. Particularly for me, I mean, because I had been to um, Bible college for like four years and I basically spent like four years writing my master's degree or working on it. So to invest that Im amount of time in something is very easy to become arrogant and feel like a know-it-all. So I think to have doubts about like the divinity of Christ, um, especially when you see things like that Waco uh, series on Netflix, which was pretty disturbing to me in certain respects because the charisma of David Koresh and people believing that he was the son of God, at least as portrayed in that production, made me think like, well, was Jesus that kind of guy? Yeah. Have you ever <laughs> seen the documentary series Wild Wild Country? No, no. It's amazing. It is the single best documentary series that I've ever seen. Hmm. And it follows a teacher, um, Osho. That's, his, that's the name that his uh, followers have for him. But he... Um, he uh, is. It's a. It was a new religious movement in the '80s, and they ended up moving out of India and kind of going into the middle of nowhere, Oregon, mm -hmm. <laughs> and setting up like a full town. And they ended up actually taking over the nearby town by having their people move into the town, take over like the the board, and become mayors and stuff, and rename streets. Um, but anyways, it's the whole new religious movement thing with this leader and. And there's even like a Judas figure and a Peter figure, and and, and you can just mm. see these personalities kind of bubbling up. And I was, and, and it really made me think about the early church. Mm. I'm like, oh, they're talking about this one figure the way that the early church talked about Judas, mm. Mm. <laughs> right? Like that's ah, it's very fascinating when you when you think about it that way. Yeah, we're going off on a tangent here. No, yeah, it's great. I'm enjoying <laughs> um, myself. Tangents are great. Um, let's talk a little bit about your transition into orthodoxy. So I know people that were certain kinds of Christians, but then they wanted to become orthodox Christians, but they would not characterize the move to becoming an orthodox Christian as a conversion. Mm. Uh, I've heard orthodox people or people that have become orthodox say, it's not that I'm leaving behind anything that I used to believe. It's that I'm just fulfilling or I'm filling out kind of little things here and there. Yeah. Um, and But I've also heard other people say that, yes, it was a complete conversion. Like my whole life changed in that moment when I became right. orth when an right. Orthodox Christian as opposed to oh, whatever else you were before. Mm -hmm. how, how would you characterize your entrance into the Orthodox Church? Um, kind of, not to sound too idealistic, because no one's journey is ideal, but somewhere in the middle of those, because on one hand, like I understand the language of fulfillment and 
I do think that orthodoxy is the fullest expression of Christianity that I've encountered. And at the same time, there are certain aspects of Protestantism and just how it frames who God is and his relation to the world. And obviously Protestantism is very, very broad, but so more specifically like evangelical Protestantism. And even that there's like a lot of different streams, but there are certain emphases or aspects that I don't agree with anymore. I mean, just a really obvious one is like people who would think that icons are idolatrous, like obviously that's incompatible with orthodoxy. And so you have to leave that behind. That was never like a huge issue for me, but, um, but at the same time, is it a conversion experience? You know, like you convert to Christ. I, I, I agree with that. So it's like, it's not as if you're following a new God or something it's in continuity, but it is quite drastic. And I think in my case, what I found was I had a certain amount of like inertia in a positive sense in evangelicalism in the sense that like people knew me and trusted me and affirmed where I was going in terms of ministry. And I was under the assumption that I could basically just uproot myself from that context and plant myself in orthodoxy and everyone that I met in orthodoxy would just be on the exact same page and I wouldn't miss a beat. Well, it turned out that I haven't moved from a country to a country before, so I don't really know what it's like to be an immigrant, but I feel kind of like those doctors from other countries that move to North America and then they're like mopping floors. So when I came into orthodoxy, it was like, well, who are you and who cares? <laughs> yeah. Who are you and who cares? Yeah, I remember we talked a lot about that and and the different kinds of expectations that exist within orthodoxy and and kind of be, being a priest in the orthodox church versus being sort of a pastor in an evangelical setting and everything like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I would because it is quite a drastic change, like conversion captures that sense, but Con the language of conversion can be problematic if one like demonizes their past, if they were raised as a Christian, because there is so many good things about, and I'm just talking in my case, evangelical Christianity that orthodoxy can learn from. So I don't believe that everything's like perfect in orthodoxy. And sometimes I'm I mean, and you would probably know better because you like grew up in the church. So you've got a lot of experiences, but sometimes I am hesitant about people that are like extremely gung ho in their conversion experience to orthodoxy because it seems blinkered or that they're not taking account of the real struggles that are present. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Uh, I want to change gears just a little bit here mm -hmm. and maybe go to a couple of the memories that we share together. Sure. sure. W one of the main ones being visiting Transfiguration Monastery in Elwood City, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And so you you, uh, you had just come to Toronto. We were in school for, 
like a month together. I don't. We did not have that long. And then I said, "Hey, Max, let's go to a monastery for a week." <laughs> um, and you graciously agreed. So we drove down four hours down to Elwood City, Pennsylvania, just north of Pittsburgh, to um, a woman's monastery there. And I, I just want to get your. We're about two years out from that, or so. Yeah. Two or three years out from that. I don't even remember. Which is bizarre. So yeah, I was just wanting to get your reflections on on that. Was that that was your first monastery as far as I can remember? That was my first uh woman's monastery. I had been to a hermitage in British Columbia before that. Mm-hmm. Um which I think is also named Holy Transfiguration, but there's just like three monks that live there. Mm-hmm. In any case. Um, yeah, I think monasteries are great. I really enjoy going to them, the two that I've been to. It's, well, actually, no, I guess I've been to three. I've been to a Catholic one, too. And it's just nice. It's just nice that that way of life exists and that there are people out there that have devoted themselves to God in that way. And it's really beautiful, like amazingly beautiful. And I wish that it was more accessible to people. Like when my wife and I went to Quebec and we were going around to some of these old cathedrals and like there were tour guides and stuff. It was kind of, it was very sad on one level. Like the the buildings were very beautiful and they speak, but I was sad that there wasn't like, a bunch of monks showing us around or nuns showing us around. Like it, it just seemed to have a museum kind of quality. It's like, yeah, people used to come here and worship, but not anymore. And that's really sad. So I, I really appreciate um, the monastics that I've had the opportunity to encounter. You, you went to Columbia Bible college. You graduated from Columbia Bible college. I just had, you know, my best friend Justin Coop on here who graduated from Columbia Bible College. And in a couple of weeks, I'm going to have Father Deacon Simeon who also graduated from Columbia Bible College. So what is it about Columbia Bible College and being on my podcast slash like a love of orthodoxy? That's a good question. I wonder. Uh, You should also interview, oh man, I'm not going to remember his name but there's a priest in the oca who's in like manitoba or saskatchewan who also went to Columbia wow. Bible college we all need to get together for a special episode one day yeah <laughs> um and it and they have some of the faculty have actually noticed that because when i first moved back to bc after being in toronto i interviewed for a position at columbia um like a learning assistant sort of tutor position and the registrar uh, commented on the number of students that had switched to orthodoxy. I know that you do get like some exposure at Columbia. Um, there's a religious literature course and the teacher Irv Clausen, um, among many books has the students read, uh, the way of the pilgrim, which is all about the Jesus prayer. And that's where I first encountered it. And I was like really impressed with it. And, sort of implemented it into my spiritual life right then, even though I wasn't orthodox or anything. And uh, I wonder if it's the case with like religious institutions in general, like of higher learning that 
like in the West, orthodoxy is not very known. And so there's sort of a mystique or like an attractiveness to it because at least in my case, I wanted to learn more about this stream of Christianity that I knew was like one of the top three players. Like you've got Catholicism, then you've got Orthodoxy, and then you've got Protestantism. And I think as well, um, growing up evangelical, there is like, I don't know if it's still the case, but there was a lot of propaganda against the Catholic Church, um, which was kind of a hangover from the Reformation where there was a lot of bitter conflict, but I grew up thinking that Catholics actually weren't Christian. And so I think for evangelicals, it, it would be hard to, it, harder to make the switch to Catholicism because there is all that negative baggage, mm-hmm. but orthodoxy is just like totally unknown. And so if someone is wanting like a more liturgical sacramental Christianity, I can understand why they would move towards orthodoxy or, you know, like high Anglicanism or maybe Lutheranism. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you read The Way of the Pilgrim and you started implementing the Jesus Prayer even before you were orthodox. Can you talk a little bit about, number one, what the Jesus Prayer is for the listeners that don't know? Um, but also what it meant that you implemented that in your prayer life. Like, what did your prayer life look like before? What did it look like after? How did that all work? If you don't mind talking a little bit about if um, your prayer life. Yeah. Uh, so the Jesus prayer comes in different variants, but the essence, I guess, is Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it's a prayer that one just repeats constantly. And so it's less about asking God for things and more about spending time with God and just enjoying that union. And I mean, the reason you use the Jesus prayer is because your mind can't actually be like completely blank. Like ideally it'd be great if you could just, just be in God's presence and not say anything, but because the mind always wants to move in a certain direction, you need to give it something to chew on. And so that's why we say the Jesus prayer. I didn't use it exclusively. It was just sort of tacked on to everything else. But for me, um, at that time, I would take the bus to school, like the city bus, and have to walk a bit. And so I remember like just saying it in my head as I was going for a walk. And sometimes... I would, you know, take a break between classes for like half an hour and just walk around the neighborhood and use the Jesus prayer. And it was really, and still is just like a really wonderful tool. Mm -hmm. Are there any other seminal books for you that, that helped you on your journey into orthodoxy? I think the first one was, um, uh, the Orthodox Way by Callisto Swear, Bishop Callisto Swear. Mm-hmm. And thereafter, like, one of the things I wanted to really round out with my master's degree was church history because I didn't get a lot of that in my undergrad. And so I started making a conscious effort to read the 
fathers or the church fathers. So like, especially writers from like the 300s and 400s. And I would say St. Augustine's works were really helpful to me. Origins works were really helpful to me. Um, Pseudo Dionysius, the Areopagite's works were like really, really helpful to me. Uh, Maximus, the confessor, he's, he's also helpful. Um, so I would say that like contemporaries were obviously important, but I think even more important for me and really powerful were these really mm -hmm. old Christian writers. So we're going to do a little game right now. <laughs> I'm uh, ready. We're going to go through these four figures that you just listed off. And uh -oh. I want you just to like, um, what is the sort of your, maybe like an emotional reaction or, or what, what is that one thing that they helped you with? Or what is it, what is, what is it that comes to your mind when you think of that author and, and how they helped you um, in your faith? Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Okay, let's let's start with uh, Augustine or Augustine. Um, so he was a, a bishop who lived in the 400s. In um, he's from Hippo, which is northern Africa, but was you know in the Roman Empire there. Um, very, very extremely fundamentally influential um, thinker, philosopher, theologian in the Western half of the the Christian world. So yeah, uh, Augustine. What what does he what did he do for you? I think Augustine is great in many respects, but for me, his emphasis on, which is later picked up by Thomas Aquinas uh, in a great way, uh, just his emphasis on that whatever is good and true and beautiful belongs to God and stems from him. And so St. Augustine has a book, it's like on Christian uh, teaching, and it's like a handbook that's meant to teach people how to preach basically. And he goes through, um, well, throughout that book, he just says like anything that's noble and true you can use. Mm -hmm. And he even, uh, at the end refers to this like rule book on speaking by a Donatist who is technically like a heretic, albeit a sort of strange heretic because they're like, they were overly zealous. Um, but it's just a nice way to for St. Augustine to end because he's like, look at me, I'm using this thing from a guy who's not like 100% necessarily. Mm -hmm. uh, he's got overly strict views about who's in and out of the church, but I can still use this book and use it to teach you. Right. Well, that's, I think that's an important message for a lot of Christians to contemplate today, especially in the age of the like alternative Christian media world. In, oh, yeah. in, in North America, like, oh, well, there's Netflix. Well, we got the Christian version of Netflix. Oh, you know, Taylor Swift came out with a new single. Well, we have the Christian version of that song. And you have, you, it's basically a parallel culture because you're not allowed to interact with that like sinful worldly stuff. Yeah, it's a parallel hollow culture. Right. As opposed to like Augustine who might ask us to look for the beauty in, in the things around us, even yeah. if they might not necessarily come from a purely Christian background. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's because salvation is about becoming a human being. And so it pertains to all of life. It's not like this little sequestered thing off on the side. So mm -hmm. yeah, definitely. 
So Origen was a philosopher, theologian, thinker who lived in Alexandria, which is northern Europe in, sorry, northern Africa in um, what is now modern day Egypt, I yeah. believe. Yeah. And he lived in the 200s. I think even earlier, like, yeah, like 180 or something. Yeah. And, and he was, he's considered by, I correct me if I'm wrong, you would probably know better than me, but like one of the most foremost, like biblical scholars of all time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like, like to, to, to say that out loud, like that's, that's a, a very bold claim to make of somebody, but I think he's commonly thought of that way. Um, He's very extremely influential on so many future fathers and mothers of the church who wrote about things. Um, but eventually, a couple hundred years after his death, um, he was declared a heretic by the by the church. Um, so yeah, why 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 was Origen uh, influential on you? Well, uh, because he interprets allegorically and he sees Christ in all of Scripture. So. When I was at Columbia Bible College, I listened to a lot of sermons by Timothy Keller, who's a Presbyterian minister in New York City. He's now retired, I think. But he would uh, always pull things back to Christ in really surprising and exhilarating ways, particularly when he was expositing from the Old Testament. And I thought that that was really, really remarkable Particularly because, again, just to give a bit of context, in my undergrad, I was taught the historical critical method, which meant when you read scripture, it's like an ancient human document, and you're trying to understand what the original audience intended, which, in the case of the Israelites, wasn't, you know, no Israelite was writing thinking about Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is thousands of years removed from these ancient documents. So we were kind of taught to separate those two things. And I can understand why from like a teaching perspective, it's kind of like the same reason you teach children not to start sentences with and because they'll just do it all the time. But it's, it's not actually wrong to start a sentence with and. And similarly, it's certainly not wrong to see Christ in the Old Testament. So Timothy Galloway's sermons, brought me to Christ, or not brought me to Christ, but he would always bring the sermon to Christ. And Origen did that like times 10, which was amazing. And he would see like the symbolism of different like numbers. And it wasn't about whether the, uh, the author of the text, say Song of Songs or whatever, intended it to be about the soul and Jesus Christ and the union of those two things. Uh, it was more so that as Christians, we read the Old Testament allegorically because Christ has given new meaning to it. And um, yeah, his, his condemnation as a heretic is unfortunate and seems to have reasons that were more to do with Origen's followers. That said, Origen does have sort of crazy ideas at times about like the pre-existence of the soul or even like the cyclical nature of the universe, but, um, or, you know, the final redemption of, of the devil and what other sort of odd things does he have? Well, the creation of the world because thing, things became too stupid basically. And so they needed physical matter to learn and to understand. But, but all that aside, 
we've got to remember that he's like one of the very first Christian theologians. So, you know, he was breaking new ground there. Yeah. Yeah. And so he made some errors, but he made a lot of good choices and gave us some great works. Yeah. Well, he was, whether you like him or not, he was extremely influential on so many later, so much later theology. Yeah. It's just origin reworked. Well, yeah, and so um, uh, St. Gregory Nazianzus and St. Basil the Great compile the Philokalia of Origen, mm-hmm. and that's like a tribute to Origen. It's like Origen's greatest hits through two of the Cappadocians who are renowned in Orthodoxy. You've got St. Maximus the Confessor who picks up many of Origen's emphases, but sort of... Um, Tames origin, if you will. Mm-hmm. So yeah, origin's great. So I have a funny story about origin. So so his name is origin, right? Yeah. It's but it's spelt different than like the origin, like origin right. of species or something. It's spelled yeah. different, but it yeah. sounds the same. And I was in my undergrad doing a course in early Christianity, and we had to do we did a, an exam, and then we had to go in the hall if we were done early and wait. And one of the questions was pick two out of the four early figures in the church and write like a short answer about each of them or something. And one of them was origin of Alexandria. So anyways, I finish my paper. I go out in the hall. I'm chatting with a a friend uh, about the test. She's like, oh, question three was so hard. Like, how am I supposed to know what the origin of Alexandria is? (laughs) I was like, okay, I think, I think I did pretty good on this test. With us. <laughs> um, okay, so so we went through uh, Augustine and we went through Origen. By the way, two figures that have controversial legacies within the Orthodox Church. Um, now let's go to uh, one of the others you picked, which is Pseudo Dionysius. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, just to give a background for for some of our listeners. Um, there's a a group of writings that come from seemingly from around this five six hundreds, I think, right? Max, yeah, you yeah. Can correct me and if I'm wrong. Yeah, I think they're first quoted by like the Pneumatomachians, which are sort of a heretical group that didn't believe in the full divinity of the Holy Spirit. Right. I think that's where they're first quoted. And but they are attached to this figure named Dionysius, who was the first bishop of. Athens in like the first century. Um, and mentioned in scripture when Paul goes to right. uh, the Areopagus yeah. in Acts 17, and he's yeah. one of the converts. Yeah. So if you, if you take the texts at their word or at their, um, at their signing, uh, it would seem that these texts come from that figure in the New Testament and therefore are really, really early. Um, but uh, I think it's, ubiquitously understood that these texts do come from later centuries. Um, so, uh, but nonetheless, they are extremely influential. Uh, so Max, tell me a little bit about that. Why, why did it influence you or, or why did you like it? Well, Dionysius is kind of neat because he writes like no one else and it's very grandiose flowery language that he employs. And, uh, why did I like Dionysius a lot? I think because he he's like 
maybe the apophatic theologian par excellence. So I think we're going to need a little bit of uh, definitions on that. Yeah, yeah. So sort of there's two big ways to talk about God. One is cataphatic and one is apophatic. So cataphatic is like positive affirmations about who God is. And so God is great. God is good. God is love. And then you've got apophatic, which means like negations. So God is invisible. God is incomprehensible. Um, and apophaticism is very central to orthodoxy. Like in the liturgy, we often describe God as, as invisible, incomprehensible, and so on. Um, and it just was a very attractive way to think about God because I think it's, well, I, I would agree with um, Dionysius that it's, it's actually a little more accurate than the affirmations because God is so different than us that, you know, as humans, we can't help but almost like uh, personify God or use metaphors to speak about God, to try and understand who he is. And that's all good, but uh, we get a little closer to reality where when we negate like uh, what, what God isn't, if that makes any sense. Right, like God is beyond our understanding. Yeah, I think, yeah, it just really highlights that God is mysterious, that we're not going to understand God, that he's not like um, an equation to be figured out. And I think particularly in theology, there is a temptation to nail God down as X, Y, and Z and pretend that because we've understood some sort of logical problem, we have understood the creator of the universe, which is just obviously wrong. So Dionysius is great on that. He's also great on hierarchy because he invented the word hierarchy and mm -hmm. he talks about the celestial hierarchy and the ecclesial hierarchy. So he talks about all these ranks of angels and that in particular was very, very popular in the middle ages. That's sort of how Dionysius gets picked up. But, um, he also talks about the ecclesial hierarchy. So going from say the bishop down to, um, the priests and the deacons and then the monastics and the lay people and so on and so on. And, uh, What's kind of cool about that is that in our time, we often think of hierarchy as um, very negative. Um, but as Dionysius explains it, hierarchy is always for the good of those lower down. And it's, it's how deification happens. It's how people actually participate in God. And so it's like if God is the light all of the stages of hierarchy are mirrors that are reflecting that light down to those at the bottom of the hierarchy. So I think Dionysius, among other things, is refreshing to read because he challenges some of our assumptions uh, in the West, particularly around hierarchy. If you'd like to listen to the second half of this interview, you can head over to patreon.com slash priest. Your support is what makes this podcast possible. Thanks for listening. Why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world inside?